0: We are near the end of our study of gathered worship. Lord willing, we will have two more sermons um, on gathered worship. Next Sunday is some of the dangers, and then the next Sunday um, is a wrap up sermon from the book of Revelation. Uh, Earlier, at the beginning of this series, when we worked through kind of a a biblical theology of worship, we worked from Genesis to Jude. And I intentionally stopped before Revelation so that we could come back and wrap up from the book of Revelation two Sundays from now, Lord willing. So, two Sundays on worship, then the two Sundays after that are our Bible and science seminar, and then we will begin our study of the book of First Thessalonians. Um, there is, though, that one big asterisk when we say that this concludes our series on gathered worship— and that is that we haven't talked about music yet. And so in Bible studies through the rest of the fall and this winter, we'll be talking about music both uh, in, in itself and music in, in gathered worship. So that part is still to come. One thing that's going to be a little bit different in the, the First Thessalonians series as we go back to just an expositional series through a book of the Bible, um, in the past, when Pastor Eric or Pastor John has preached... Um, They've usually preached from some other text of Scripture other than what we were studying, like Pastor John's Matthew series. Uh, When we start into this First Thessalonian series, on the Sundays when those other pastors preach, um, they're going to just continue on with wherever we're at in the text uh, that we're working through. So, I mean, there will still be unusual Sundays, holiday Sundays, and so forth. But if it's just a normal Sunday and the normal flow of our exposition and one of those other pastors is preaching, uh, we'll just be continuing right on in the same book. All right, this morning we are talking about responding together in gathered worship. We learned several months ago that worship is the right response of man to God. And we've also learned that we gather for worship. And we've studied the various elements of what we do when we gather. But this morning, we're talking specifically about how we respond together. Um, One word that's not quite precise, but maybe makes clear what we're talking about. We're talking about external responses. In other words, responses that other people can see or that other people can hear when we gather together. So, let's pause and pray for the Lord's help And then start, Father, we look to you this morning to bring our minds and hearts here by the help of your Spirit. Thank you that you help us in worship, and we need that today to focus our attention on you and your Word. So would you please be our helper, strengthen us in our weakness when the Spirit is willing but the flesh is weak, magnify Christ, and help us love one another well as we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. As you know, I enjoy sports a lot. And it took me a little while to figure out that back when we planted this church, I, I, it took me a little while to realize that I didn't really pass through a church of people who had very much interest in sports, especially in the early days. Um, I guess I just assumed everybody was like me. And sometime, sometime early on, I don't know when, surely more than 15 years ago, I organized a group of men in the church to go to a baseball game. Now, maybe my mistake was choosing San Diego instead of one of the L.A. teams. I don't know. But we went, and I think it's about 10 of us probably, if I remember right. And what sticks in my mind from that night is that of those 10 men, there might have been one other man who was mildly interested in that game everyone else was either completely uninterested or rooting against the Padres just because they could. Not, I mean, I think they were playing Washington, so it wasn't like we had Nationals fans among us. It was just, why not root against the Padres? And I remember being irritated that we went all this way to go to a Padres game, and no one was actually paying attention to the game and cheering for the Padres. Now... Obviously, I have had some growing up to do, and in hindsight, I realize that the point of going to a baseball game with people from church is not baseball. It's people, so I should have chilled and enjoyed being with my brothers, but I was a little bothered. But my reason for telling that story this morning is that when you attend a sporting event, you and the other people who attend that game are responding together. Now, your responses might be different. Some people might boo right when other people cheer, the same thing. Some might, you know, do the little scoring on the little chart in the program where you write down every single thing that happens in a baseball game. Some people might just scroll social media all night. Some people are just there to eat. Some people are just there to talk. But you respond together. You might watch over the shoulder of the person who knows how to do the scoring, because you're wondering, wow, how do they know what all those little lines and things mean? You might get popcorn or something else spilled on you as the people walk by in front of you with their food. You might have a really loud fan screaming behind you right in your ear. And so it can be uncomfortable to be responding together, uh, but it can also be really thrilling. It's an amazing experience to cheer a huge victory with tens of thousands of people, especially if it's your team and you've been waiting forever for them to finally win. And now here we are. But if you don't like taking that risk, you know, that someone might scream in your ear or spill their beer on you or irritate you because they don't care about the game, you can just stay home. You can buy a huge TV and watch the game in 4K and put on your jersey and wave your little finger and get your snacks and respond all by yourself. You can go or you cannot go, but Christian worship doesn't work like that. We are called to gather so that you can hear when other people sing, so that you can see other people's faces, so that you can watch other people's physical responses. So that you can consider what other people share. Obviously, there are vast differences between a baseball game and gathered worship. But the point is that in both settings, you are affected by the responses of other people. And in gathered worship, that's the way it's supposed to be. If you want to just stay home and be a TV fan of your favorite baseball team, that's fine. But you can't just stay home and be a TV fan of Jesus. We have to gather and actually respond together. Look with me in Romans chapter 15, at verses 5 and 6. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ is welcomed to you for the glory of God. Turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 2. There are many passages in Scripture that we could review at this point, um, like Romans 12, which says. Present your body to God as a living sacrifice. This is your spiritual worship. And then right away, the rest of Romans 12 into Romans 13, 14, 15 are about life in the body of Christ. Or Hebrews 12, which Eric read from this morning, which ends with that great call to draw near to God. And then in Hebrews 13, immediately starts talking about life in the body of Christ. Or Hebrews 13, verses 15 and 16. These are all things we've seen earlier in this series. Hebrews 13, 15 says, Through Christ... Let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God. The very next verse says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So over and over and over again, we have that pattern of worship and then body of Christ. Let's look, though, at Ephesians 2. This is one uh, set of verses we haven't looked at, though we've looked at the end of Ephesians 2 several times. So you know Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, probably, If you're familiar with verses 8 and 9, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may, may boast. And then he goes on, and in verse 10, he says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now we might wonder, what kind of good works is he talking about? Well, One question we could ask is, what does he talk about next after he talks about how Christ saved us for these good works that he created us for? And what he talks about next is how the Gentiles used to be separated from Christ, and the Jews and Gentiles used to live in hostility. Verse 13, "...but now in Christ Jesus you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ." For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Crystal and I once uh, went to a Giants Dodgers game in San Francisco. That was an experience. Um, And we were out in the, oh, uh, out in this bleacher section out past left field. And right in front of us was this walkway. And so as people would go back and forth on that walkway, Giants and Dodgers fans would yell at each other, like from the walkway up to the stands and and back and forth. Uh, It was a little hostile. But that's just sports. This was a deep-seated, racially, historically motivated hatred that you were born with and taught from early childhood. And... The Gentiles were actually separated from God, but through the blood of Christ, he brought them together. So now verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, people who hate each other, people who yell at each other, and people who are separated from God, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So a sports team can try lots of things to motivate fans to come to a game because they make money off you if you watch the game on TV, but they make more money off you if you come to the game. And they might try lots of things to make you feel like you're part of it and want to go, but what we just read in Ephesians 2, these are words from God, and not a God who's trying to get money out of you, but as it says earlier in Ephesians 2, the God who pours out the riches of his grace in kindness towards you in Christ Jesus. And he tells us that when we gather as a church, it is far more meaningful than any sporting event ever could. And my point's not to criticize sports. My point is to magnify the meaning of responding to God together. Getting popcorn spilled on you by a fellow fan at a baseball game doesn't mean anything, unless it, for some reason, adds to your enjoyment of the experience. But what happens when we gather here has eternal significance Because we are fellow citizens with the saints. Because we are members of the household of God. Because Christ is the cornerstone of this. Because as we respond together, we are actually growing into a holy temple in the Lord. And as the last phrases of Ephesians 3 say, this matters throughout all generations, forever and ever. So, no TV fans here. The church of Jesus Christ is real, in-person, responding together, and we truly do glorify God as we do that. It's worship. So that's all just introduction. I want us to spend the rest of our time talking about what are some of those ways we respond together, and then how do we think about that. So will you turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 8? And again, I'm, I'm referring specifically this morning to the kind of responses that are evident to one another. Not necessarily the silent ways that we respond in our own heart. We've already talked about those responses a lot. We know that's like the foundation of worship, what goes on in our own hearts. But now we're talking about the ways in which our responses come out so that others see them or others hear them. And like I said earlier, we might even call them external responses, but I don't love that word because... That might make it sound like we're talking about something we just put on or fake. So I'm calling them mutual responses because they can affect one another, and that is, that is what God wants. That is what God intends. So first of all, what are biblical examples of mutual responses in gathered worship? And we'll find several of these here in Nehemiah, which is when the walls of Jerusalem had been completed and the people gathered for that great reading of the law and and festival. And and then we're also going to see some examples from Ezra, which is when the the foundation of the temple had been laid. So first of all, here in Nehemiah 8, we see bowing. Nehemiah 8, verse 6. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen. 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 Lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So here, this type of bowing is bowing their heads, so that their faces were down. There are other biblical examples of bowing that are, is bending over, uh, kneeling, of course, or even laying down before the Lord. In every case, bowing is a sign of fear or respect or reverence. And Scripture is just filled with references to bowing before the Lord. So the Apostle Paul says that he bows his knees before the Father. We know that Philippians 2, someday every knee will bow before Jesus. The elders in heaven fall down before the throne of God as they worship. Psalm 95 says, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. And most importantly, remember that from the very beginning of our series, we learned that the most common Greek and Hebrew words for worship both literally mean to bow down. There is nothing more just absolutely foundational to what worship means than bowing. The right response of people to God is to bow your head, bend over, kneel down, even fall on your face. Now, it is, it is true that Christ then lifts us up. It is true that we stand in grace. Yet you cannot truly know Christ and grace until you have first fallen before God as a humble and a helpless sinner. And even after you stand in grace in Christ, there will be many, many other times when you, as you see the glory and the holy majesty of God, you know that it would be right for you to bow your head or to even get down before him. Now, of course, when we talk about those things and everything we talk about today, that physical posture of bowing has to reflect your heart attitude. It's got to be heart and body that are bowing, bowing before him. So what does that mean when we gather for worship? Well, you know, it's not very easy for all of us to lay down before the Lord in a way that would be uh, edifying. Um, It's even a little bit hard to kneel with these tight rows. But we do bow our heads together. We sometimes kneel in prayer meeting together. And really, at any time in our services, you could just sit down and put your head down. You could even turn around and kneel there at your seat. What's most important is the heart posture of reverence before God, but it's right to reflect that heart posture with our bodies, too. So, bowing is just really part of the very essence of worship. The second thing we have listed here is standing. Nehemiah 8, verse 5, and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. So they stood when he opened the God's word to read. And then if you look ahead into chapter 9, Nehemiah 9, verse 5. Then the Levites, and it names eight of them, said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. They were were crying out. They were confessing sin. They were praying to the Lord. And then the Levites told them, now stand up and bless the Lord your God. Other times we read that the Levites stood up to praise the Lord. Other places refer to standing in awe of God, or there are examples of people standing to pray like Hannah and, and Solomon. Now, with these kind of things, like standing and, and, and bowing, we shouldn't just assume that because someone did it in the Bible, therefore we need to do it, or do it just like them. Um, but so, there are some physical you know, uh, motions that have pretty universal significance, and then there are, there are also ways in which they have cultural significance. So we want to ask that question about whatever we're talking about. What does it mean? What does it indicate? So what does standing indicate? Like, not just in ancient Israel, but today. Um, does standing communicate respect still in our culture? Does standing communicate attention to something? Like you, you stand if there's something especially you want to watch or see. So standing um, may be something that we use in worship to communicate something of respect toward God. Next is lifting hands, and uh, we can see this in Ezra 9, verse 5. No, Ezra 8, verse 6. <laughs> okay, Ezra 9, verse 5. It's, we want, yes. Okay, we're going to come back to Nehemiah 8.6, but it's Ezra 9.5 that is actually what I'm referring to. All right. I picked up Crystal at the airport in the middle of the night last night, so she and I both seem like we're only half here. We are only half here. Ezra 9, verse 5 and at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. Spread out my hands. You can go back to Nehemiah 8. We'll look at Nehemiah 8, six in just a second. Many other passages of Scripture describe something similar to what was there in Ezra 9, verse 5. We also saw at this, oh, we didn't quite get there in this morning's scripture reading, did we? But 1 Timothy 2, right after our scripture reading this morning, the next verses, verse 8, Paul says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands. There's an interesting phrase in Psalm 119, too, that says, I will lift up my hands toward your commandments. Derek Kidner calls that a bold expression of yearning for God's revelation in Scripture. So what we see there in Ezra 9, in Psalm 119, in 1 Timothy 2, is the, the, the extending of your hands or the lifting up of your hands to communicate need or emptiness or even yearning And so those things still have meaning in our culture today. So when we gather for worship, sometimes it's appropriate to extend your hands, low or high. People joke about that, and it's what you mean from your heart that matters here. Extend your hands in need to God. Then there's also the the lifting of hands as an expression of praise. That's what's in Nehemiah 8, verse 6. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, "Amen, Amen," lifting up their hands. So, this is the, what's much more common in Christianity today, is to lift your hands as a symbol of praise. Um, and I'm I'm not sure I know I'm not sure I can show you from the Bible exactly what that means. It's not very often referred to in the Bible. In the Bible, the the the, the hands are much more about prayer usually. Um, but it maybe it does. Some scholars repra- suggest that maybe it has the idea of like lifting your heart to God, uh, or maybe in some other way, it's just a emotion that expresses praise. Um, but it doesn't. It doesn't matter either way because even in all that, if if we are, if you lift your hands in praise or in need, for a Christian, those two things are like two sides of the same coin. When you praise God, are you not praising him? Because he is Yahweh, the great I am, who is just what you need. And you're praising him for redemption. You're praising him for mercy. So whether the raised hands are need or praise, or it's, it's yes. Uh, something along those lines. And so lifting your hands is certainly appropriate in gathered worship. All right, letter D is dancing. Now, the two well-known examples of dancing that are related to worship In the Old Testament uh, are the ladies of the children of Israel dancing with Miriam to celebrate the crossing of the Red Sea, and then David dancing as the ark came into uh, Jerusalem. The prophet Jeremiah promised a day when God would restore the dancing of his people. The psalmist said, "'You have turned for me my mourning into dancing.'" And in Psalms 149 and 150, the psalmist also called for dancing, particularly with tambourines. In the New Testament, there's one reference to dancing as they celebrated the son's return. It's in the parable of the prodigal son, and the father throws this feast, and they dance to celebrate the, the son coming back. Of course, in the Bible, there's also lots of ungodly dancing, more ungodly dancing than godly dancing. Uh, in the Bible. And so that makes dancing a little different than some of these other things on the list because the word dancing can refer to so many different things. Um, And so it just requires a lot of uh, more nuance here. And ancient Hebrew dancing and modern American dancing probably have almost nothing in common. But there are Christians and cultures where there are appropriate cultural ways to Yes? Taking advantage of those wet roads? <laughs> okay, are you done out there? When we went to Togo, we brought back videos from church of dancing. It was primarily in special music, but there are plenty of cultures around the world where Christians incorporate appropriate kinds of Dancing in in church services, so that's just going to depend entirely upon church and culture. And the same is true of the next action in our list, which is clapping. Clapping's mentioned just a few times in the Bible, and sometimes clapping in the Bible is like negative and hostile and mocking or that kind of thing. But sometimes it's positive. And Psalm forty-seven one says, "Clap your hands, all people! Shout to God with loud songs of joy." So there, it seems like there's clapping connected to music. Oh, once again, the appropriateness of clapping in a New Testament church is just going to depend on the church, going to depend on the culture. Um, But it is mentioned in the Bible. Now, uh, let's turn over to Ezra chapter 3. And when we get there, we'll find out if I got this one right. I did. Ezra 3. Because we want to talk about shouting. Ezra 3, verses 10 through 13. So, this is when God brought the people back after the Babylonian captivity. They started working on trying to rebuild the temple, and it was kind of pathetic in its scope and grandeur, and yet it was exciting. And so when they got the foundation laid, Ezra 3, verse 10 And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, the first temple, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great joy, and the sound was heard far away. So there you have a whole bunch of shouting to celebrate, to worship the Lord as the foundation of the temple was laid. And many other places in the Old Testament, shouting is connected to like special moments, historic moments, and oftentimes it's outdoors. But the Psalms use those same words for shouting, and they say things like, the psalmist says, I will offer... In God's tent, sacrifices with shouts of joy. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing aloud to God our strength. Shout for joy. When Psalm 98 says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, that's the same shouting word as Ezra chapter 3. Psalm 98 verse 6, with trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise. Same word, shout before the king, the Lord. Psalm 101, same word, make a joyful noise. That's the shouting word. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. And you can see from those passages that it's often tied together with music, instruments, and singing. It's that way in Psalm 95. It's that way here in Ezra chapter 3. And that's probably because it's not especially easy for us to shout together in a way that's edifying and helpful and orderly. But music allows us to do that. We did it this morning in our song service because we were singing Come, Praise, and Glorify. And in Come, Praise, and Glorify, we all said loudly together, I am free! But it didn't sound like this cacophony of a whole bunch of people screaming. Music brought us together, unified us in our timing, gave us a melody to say it together. And But this whole room of people all together said to the Lord, I am free. Uh, it, we also, another moment in the song service when I, when I thought of it was in my faith has found a resting place. When we said together, enough for me that Jesus died. But the music allowed us to, to come together and, and shout to the Lord, so we have shouting, and then that brings us to singing Ezra three eleven says and they sang responsively so in that setting where they were they were shouting, there was a back and forth kind of singing, like a calling and answering one another so that was probably very vibrant and very energetic, and it tells us that it was very loud. You could hear it from a long ways, long ways away. So we'll talk more about singing later in the fall or winter. I won't continue on that now. But, but for now, just note that singing is emphasized far more strongly than some of the other things we've, we've listed, like clapping or dancing or lifting your hands. Those things are mentioned a few times. Singing is emphasized throughout Scripture, and it's commanded for the New Testament church. So it's really in a different category than some of the other things on on this list. Singing is one of the most essential mutual responses because we can hear each other sing, and that's just what God intends in the church. All right, Uh, back to Nehemiah chapter 8. I know we're kind of going back and forth between Ezra and Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 8. And we're coming back to the same verse verse six we've already seen in this verse bowing and we've seen lifting up hands but then you've probably also noticed that we've there's amen here and Ezra blessed the Lord the great God and all the people answered amen amen so what does amen mean um, it can mean several different things though they're all similar uh, it, for me it helps it to sum, it helps me to summarize it with four phrases. Amen can mean I agree. That's true. Yes. Or may it be so. I agree. That's true. Yes. May it be so. Now that means that Amen can be sober. Like in Deuteronomy, when Moses read the curses for disobeying the law, and all the people said, amen. Not like, that's cool, (laughs) but yes, I agree. God is just. God is fair. Those curses for rebellion against God are right. Right. So amen can be sober, and Jesus, I'll, I'll come back to this in just a second, but when Jesus said amen, it was in relation to his sayings to emphasize, these things are true. So amen can be sober, amen can be earnest or almost desperate, like, please let it be so, like at the end of a prayer, and amen can be, can be earnest. And then, many times, more of the time, amen is joyful. Amen is excited. Amen is, yes, that's true, I agree. So, what's remarkable is just how much emphasis the Bible places on the word amen. There are a few references to dancing, a few references to shouting, a few references to clapping, but amen is all over the place. So many important references to it. And it's, it's easy to miss it a little bit because sometimes the translations translate it with the word truly. But it's the exact, it's the exact same word. So there are amens in the law and the prophets. The, the Psalms divide into these major books, and every one of the major books in the Psalms ends with an amen. The elders and living creatures at the throne of God in heaven say amen. Amen. And one of the things that's especially interesting is that in the New Testament letters that were supposed to be read publicly in churches, they're packed full of amens. Why is that? Because the expectation was that as those things were read in church, the people who were hearing those things would then together say amen. I don't know if you remember this, but when I I read for us a whole bunch of New Testament doxologies from all over the New Testament, and I made a comment when I did that that I, I left out a whole bunch of amens because they're all over. Because the expectation was that the gathered church, the people together, were their voices were going to be this chorus of amens as they heard Those truths. There are amens after benedictions, amens after expressions of praise, amens after prayers, because the church family would respond with those amens. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, that's a passage we've looked at earlier, Paul talks about how when the church family speaks to one another and prays with one another, you need to do it in a way that other people can understand so that they can say, amen, to what you said or to what you you prayed. So clearly the expectation is that there's a whole lot of amening going on there. But here's what's maybe most interesting. 99 of the amens in the New Testament were spoken by Jesus. 99. And again, it's easy to miss that because the translators often take it as truly But the point is that Jesus was saying about his own teachings, this is true. And so, if 99 times we read that Jesus said about his own sayings, amen, what should we do with the sayings of Jesus? We should say, amen, that's true. When we hear the word of Christ, when we hear it preached, when we hear it read, when we hear it sung. And then, do you have on your handout 2 Corinthians 1, verses 19 and 20? For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Isn't that cool? All of God's promises are certain for you because of Christ. In Christ, God will keep every promise to you. Every promise is yes in Christ. And then remember that amen can mean yes. So there's a little word play here. Every promise of God is to you in Christ, yes. So what should you say then? You should say, yes. You should say, amen. You should say, that promise is mine in Christ. God's going to keep that word. That is true. And he specifically says, we utter our amen to God for his glory. It is worship. Garland writes that amen was Their affirmation of faith that God's promises had been fulfilled in Christ. Their chorus of amens in worship proclaim God's faithfulness. Isn't that a great phrase? Their chorus of amens in worship proclaim God's faithfulness. So, Psalm 106, verse 48 Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting and let all the people say amen. Praise the Lord. amen can be a show. It can be a joke for some people. It can be an empty habit. I've told you before about the church service that I was in where they were describing their the churches christian schools high school football teams late fourth quarter fourth down goal line touchdown and man that church just amen all the way through that football game description but biblically speaking to say amen when truths about god are sung or preached or read or spoken by your brothers and sisters is a deeply biblical thing to do and it is a direct expression of worship and God intends for it to be like a chorus multiple amens together which encourages one another and brings glory to God thank you that wasn't exactly a chorus but one is a start All right, now let's talk about creating the setting for mutual responses. We've, we've talked about a number of those responses in, in the Bible. Now, how do we create a setting? Just very briefly, there are very practical things that we can do when we gather that can either encourage or discourage mutual responses. And I'm not going to go down the negative here. I'm just going to state it mostly positively. We can leave the lights on enough that we can see each other rather than being in complete darkness. And that's not a reference to our lights today. We do use spotlights here in our services. But if you notice, um, we actually went to a lot of work to make sure that even though we use spotlights to help direct attention up here. But in the process of doing that, we actually worked really hard to make sure that we could keep a certain amount of room light in the rest of the room for two reasons. One, so you can see your Bible, and two, so you can see each other. Because mutual responding is hard when you're in the darkness and you can't see each other. So if you look up, notice that one set of lights is colored a different color than the other's. That's because we had the electrician intentionally wire for us a set of lights a little bit more to the back of the room so that we could have these two independent switches turn off lights up here so that the spotlights could shine and you could see the screen better, but there was still enough light back there. And then we had to have we had to put these color correction sleeves on all those light bulbs so that we wouldn't have a clash between those lights and the spotlights. All of that went into our thinking about gathered worship responding together in this room, in our our services. So lighting affects how we respond uh, together. Um, There are lots of things about music, like we can teach the congregation the songs that we sing so that then we can sing together and hear. We can use our instruments in a way that encourages congregational singing, you know, instead of we can, like, we can keep the volume of the music down enough that you can hear other people sing. You know what it's like to be in a setting where you can't really hear yourself sing, much less anybody else. Um, so we intentionally keep our musicians uh, at a level that balances with our voices. And then, of course, we also have things like prayer meetings and discipleship connect and fellowship meals. And those are all opportunities for mutual response and then we also, because we can talk to each other about the service we were just in. And then we also do things like responsive scripture readings, where we can hear each other's voices, where we sing verses of some songs without any instruments at all, so that we can hear each other's voices. All of these are just very practical ways that we try to create a setting for mutual responses. And we don't really have time to talk about this this morning, but we could go back in church history and talk about. Um, the importance of congregational involvement, the understanding that the true worshipers are not the people on the stage, but the whole church family. Because if you go back into certain times in medieval worship, you had a service that was not in a language the people understood. You had rude screens that sectioned off the people from the worship, you had sometimes a big gap between the people and the worship. And so you had these settings in which people were like craning their necks to try to get a glimpse of the priest with his back turned to them as he lifted up the body and blood of Christ. And it was this strange show. Like, He's saying these mysterious words that people can't understand because it's not in their language. And he's way up there, and you can barely see him. And maybe you'll catch a little glimpse of the body of Christ up there, way up there where you're not allowed to be. And so part of the heritage of the Reformation is just taking that and, like, reversing it so that the true worship is not there. The true worship is here. You are the true worshipers of God. And so mutual responses, creating a setting for everyone to participate in gathered worship, that's maybe normal to us, but that was shocking in the Reformation and part of what the Reformers fought for. All right, so we've talked about creating the setting for all of us to participate in worship. And now finally, let's finish with responding uh, together in love. And first of all, So as we talk about these mutual responses, we have to respond with love for God because we all know that outward responses in worship can be put on. And the Bible says that outward responses with no heart are an abomination to God. He hates it. He hates hands raised just for the show of doing it. He hates kneeling down just to be seen kneeling down. He hates anything that is put on. So whether we are bowing or raising our hands or clapping or however we might be outwardly responding, we want to ask ourselves something very similar to the question we asked when we talked about emotions in worship. We want to ask ourselves, why am I doing this? What do I mean by this? So if I'm raising my hands, what do I mean? And you don't have to worry about what the right answer is. Frankly, there's not a right answer, and you might mean something different from the person right down the road. That's not the point. The point is, if you're raising your hands to God, what do you mean by that? Are you expressing your need? Are you expressing your praise? If you're kneeling, why? If your head is bowed, why? If you're saying amen, why? The key is that the outward response is reflecting a heart of worship, not just we're not just doing it because it feels good or because everyone else is doing it, but because we love God. So first of all, respond with love for God. And then secondly, respond with love for others. And this brings us all the way back around to the, the baseball game illustration that we, that we started with. For a large number of people to attend a baseball game requires some deference. And some of those rules are unwritten, but like you, you don't get up to go get food right when the pitcher is pitching because then the people behind you can't see what's happening. You know, don't if you've got thunder sticks at the game, don't keep whacking the guy's head in front of you with your thunder sticks. Um, Do step back and let people get down the row. Don't cut in line for your hot dog. You know, it's just basic deference, right? And if we would try to do that at a baseball game, then obviously how much more when we gather with the people of God? For the worship of God. We've already seen that in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, where Paul urged the church to do everything that in a way that would build up one another. And he says, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 14, he says, Let all that you do be done in love. See, we're not gathering to just have a private worship experience. We're gathering to respond to God together, and that will require love. So for example, Love means we have deference for one another. Instead of just focusing on our preferences, we look at what would be best for the whole. Um, I want to point us to Philippians two four. It's interesting that throughout this series on worship, we've looked at a number of verses in the New Testament um, that are, I don't know, maybe they're like common memory verses or something. They're verses that reflect a universal principle, which is right. But we've seen that in context... They're talking about church life. And Philippians 2 verse 4 is one of those. It says, Let each of you look not only on his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's a universal principle, right? It applies at home, it applies at school, it applies everywhere. But in context in Philippians 2, he's talking about life in the church. Look not only on your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so, in gathered worship, We're not trying to get everything just the way I would prefer or you would prefer. If we we just put you in a place in which you were comfortable sharing your preferences, every one of you would have things you'd change. You'd have things about the decor you'd change, things about the lighting you'd change, things about the seating arrangement that you change, things about the order of service, things about the worship guide. There'd be things you wouldn't care about, but there'd probably be a couple things you're like, man, if I was in charge, I would do that different. But if we got everybody's preferences, we'd quickly find out it all, (laughs) it doesn't all, we can't all do what everybody wants, right? And so there has to be this mutual deference to one another and what Uh, is best for the whole. And sometimes in love, it's also wise to restrain our responses. And I say this a little bit tentatively because it's got to go together with something I'm going to say in just a minute, but if you are really a very expressive personality and you just honestly would like to jump up on that row and run back and forth on the seats because you're so excited about Jesus, probably not in gathered worship. It's probably not the most edifying thing for everybody. Um, and sometimes, sometimes we also need to push ourselves maybe to respond a little more. So sometimes we need to maybe bring down our responses a little bit. Sometimes, though, we need to push ourselves to respond. Some of you are very private people. And so for you to get an amen out just takes like all the strength you've got to muster. It's like you got to start it down deep and work it up and work it up. And, and there it comes. Amen. Amen. Woo! You did it! Got that amen. But maybe that would be a good thing to do. Because maybe your brothers and sisters are thinking, man, are they, do they care at all about these things we're talking about? I mean, it's just like no facial expression, no movement, no nothing. And if you could just get that little amen out, it might, it might be meaningful. Um, so I'm just trying to use examples of how we think about one another, not, not just about private worship. But then another major aspect of love, as we respond together, is being gracious with one another. Because unfortunately, we have, on one hand, we have a tendency to be critical of others. And on the other hand, we we can have a tendency to be very uh, overly self-aware and self-conscious. So like, if someone felt like, man, I just really ought to just like kneel down before the Lord right now, two things might happen. One, they might think, oh, yeah, but what's everybody else going to think about me if I do? And somebody else might think, why are they kneeling down, probably putting on a show? Oh, let all that you do be done in love, right? We've got brothers and sisters that feel life more strongly than others. And we've got people that are more emotionally expressive than others. It's okay. We've got people that are more reserved. You know, I was one of those people in school who sat in the back corner and looked like I was paying no attention, but I really, really was. It's okay. The one who easily amens should look with grace on the one who can barely muster up a faint amen. The one who raises his hand should show grace to the one who doesn't. The one who kneels shouldn't be criticized by others. In love, we put off self righteousness. We put off a critical spirit. And we put on love. Because when you put this many people in a room responding to the Lord together, we need love to respond well together. All right. So that's responding together in love. All right. So I got to finish. Why does all this matter? Just let me remind you why we're talking about this morning. Two. Two reasons why mutual responses matter. Number one, because God intends for us to build one another up through our mutual responses. To build one another up. When you amen a great truth and ten other people amen with you, it builds you up. (laughs) Like Yes, my brothers are with me in this. When you sing together, and you hear other people's voices singing those same truths, it builds you up. When after a sermon you share your responses with one another, it builds you up. When you see a brother or sister with their hands raised and you know they're going through grief and heartache and they're just desperate for God, it reminds you of their need, it draws you together, it helps you build them up, it builds you up as you see them trust God despite the suffering that you know they're going through. You see what I'm saying? Their motion, the fact that you could see their motion is part of the mutual edification that goes on. So the first reason why we're talking about this is because God intends for us to build one another up through our mutual responses. And then the second reason is because God is worthy of the response of our whole being. He is worthy of the response of our minds, our wills, our emotions, but yes, even our bodies. He created us this unified whole of body and soul and spirit all in one. And so our postures, our words, our gestures, God is worthy of all those things. They are part of, of he, he created us. This, this is a glorious, a great truth. God created us so that we can respond to him with 100% of us. Not just this part of ourselves but our whole selves. He did that for his glory, and he did that for his joy. So God is worthy, and we can respond to him with all, all that we are when we gather together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being a great God, a great Savior, and thank you for creating us to be worshipers. Then, thank you for rescuing us from the worship of everything that is deadly and defiling and instead bringing us to be worshipers of the one true God through Christ. Thank you for making us worshipers of Jesus. And I pray that you would help us continue to grow as a church family in responding together to you in healthy ways that build one another up and that bring you glory. Continue to guide us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.